Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Patrick Watson about how to use an ephemeris and some different tips and tricks for using one. Uh, hey, Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm honored. You were a frequent early guest. It's been a while. It's been like a year or two since your last appearance, right? Yeah, yeah, it has been a while. Um, You've been busy doing 20 or 30 consultations a week or something crazy like that? <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, no, not quite as many, but yeah, definitely definitely many. been busy, you know, and uh, struggling to grow a beard. So yeah, it's been, uh, that's about the extent of my accomplishments in that time. Nice. I like it. It looks very <laughs> uh, rugged. Um, <laughs> all right. So let me get the data. And so today is Sunday, May 16th, twenty. 21 starting at 2:32 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this should be the 304th episode of the show. So, as I said in this episode, we're going to be talking about the ephemeris and let me show a picture of like a page from one just to give people an idea of what we're talking about. An ephemeris to define our topic is a table of planetary positions or like a book of planetary positions. That arranges um, so you can quickly look up the positions of the planets during different points in time, and most commonly it comes in the form of a book. Uh, but you can also download like a PDF ephemeris or other things like that. Um, does that define things correctly, or how are we, how do you define an ephemeris when somebody mentions it? You know, I think a slightly more I guess profound way that I've heard an ephemeris described is by our uh, common uh, link, uh, Nick Dagan Best, who's also known as the human ephemeris, he describes the ephemeris as his favorite book and that it contains the story of every person who's lived for that period of time. And it contains every event that has happened in that period of time. And so it's a, it's a book of all of the stories of Every soul and every event that's occurred, which I think is is um, kind of profound when you think about it like that, is a uh, it's a book of time and everything that happened within it. Right, because if a if a birth chart is just a two dimensional diagram that lists the positions of the planets on the date and time that a person was born, um, you know, and that those are those positions are calculated based on an ephemeris, which calculates when the positions of the planets where they were on different dates and different years in different eras so that's basically all of those birth positions are in there as well as all of those transits that will occur either have occurred in the past or will occur in the future yeah yeah it's so yeah i, I like to think of it as a it's a book of days a book of months a book of years a book of time definitely so um here's a little video for those watching the video version of just um, sort of visually what you mean by that, because you can literally pick up the ephemeris and flip through it and look at the um, positions of the planets on different days and different months and different years um, pretty easily. So it's a little handy, handy thing to have. Um, all right, so let's go to our outline here. So we defined, so the term is ephemeris. Sometimes there's different questions about how to pronounce it, especially like the plural. But I think we were talking about it in our working pronunciation is ephemeris, and the plural is ephemerides. Although I've also heard ephemerides, but I don't think that's the correct pronunciation. What do you? How do you pronounce it? 
I pronounce it ephemeris, and then I've been uh, tending towards ephemerides, but I've also in my mind kind of said it uh, as ephemerides. And um, what was the alternate pronunciation that you've heard of ephemeris? Um, I mean, there's many, you know, because different astrologers, usually astrology is something that's learned in book form. It's often an isolating profession. And so you and I, you were just joking before this, how you know, I mispronounced, and you also evidently mispronounced the asteroid Chiron, and I called it Chiron. And so the first time I actually met an actual astrologer was like two or three years into my studies, and he very quickly like set me straight and said it's pronounced Chiron, not Chiron. So the alternate pronunciation, I think you said, was ephemeris. Putting yeah. the putting the Eph- stress on the on the meh, <laughs> ephemeris. A friend of mine, a younger astrologer who I'm not going to name, often um, pronounces it something like that, like ephemeris <laughs> or something like that. So, but I don't have the heart to, to break it to him. Break it to him. <laughs> well, yet. I don't think there's anyone out there putting the you know stress on the last syllable, ephemeris. You know, but um, yeah, I think ephemeris with the stress on the fe seems to be the uh, the most common way of of uh, saying it. Right. Um, so it comes from a Greek term we were just looking up that means um, pertaining to the day or something like that. If you think of the word ephemeral, that means something which is sort of momentary or fleeting. So it's kind of interesting to see it uh, pop up in the English language in a uh, slightly different way. Right. And so there's many different types of ephemeris because if it's just a listing of data of planetary positions. There's many different ways you could look at that, but the most common one for our purposes for astrologers is um, a listing of the longitudes of the planets, which is another way for saying um, what sign of the zodiac and what degree of each sign of the zodiac each of the planets is placed in um, for each day of a given year, basically, right? Yeah. Um so, and there's a version of that. Um, there's a free version. There's many different versions of the ephemeris, but there's a free version that you can get online, which is the most common one that people use, which is just the, uh, let me know if you can see this, but the ephemeris from astro.com. If you go to astro.com, then they're all about astrology tab. They have a whole ephemeris section. And if you click the 9,000 years ephemeris, it'll pull up this page that lists. All the different like free PDF ephemerises that they provide. Um, if you scroll down to the 21st century, and then scroll down to the one we're going to be using this year, which is the one for 2021, it'll pull up like a PDF. It'll give you an ephemeris for all 12 months of this year, and you can look at individual um, days within this. So today is the what the 16th of May. So we could pull that up Sunday 16th right here, and it tells us. All of the planetary positions. Um, so that might be a good starting point. Maybe is just breaking this down. Are you seeing this clearly on your screen? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay. Um, so, I'd, oh, so I'd imagine the first thing that you would need to do if you want to understand what this says is you would need to be able to recognize the glyphs for the signs and the planets. Right. Um, you can see the planetary the planetary glyphs are located at the very top of each. Uh, month, so you can tell what planet you're looking at, and um, the zodiac symbol is usually 
written for when the planet first ingresses into that sign. Um, so it won't be present at every, on every single day, but you can see, for example, if you look, um, uh, at the very top of the Mercury column, the Taurus symbol is there showing it's at 24 degrees and eight minutes of Taurus. And then you can see on May 5th, it entered Gemini. So you see the Gemini symbol there. And, um, so that loves, this sort of tells you, you know, where in the zodiac the planet is on that date, very uh, simply. Yeah. So you've got to know the symbols for the planets. You got to know the symbols for the signs of the zodiac. But reading an ephemeris or learning how to read an ephemeris can actually be a good way to kind of learn the signs, uh, the symbols for the signs and the planets, because this is where that information becomes really useful and really handy to know. Uh, yeah. Um, there are a couple, I mean, there's a few other things that you'll want to keep track of as well. For the most part, you can assume when you're looking at a, uh, at a given planetary column that the planet is direct unless you see the letter R indicated next to the number. Um, so this is tricky because in the Swiss ephemeris, it doesn't, um, it's a little more helpful in some other versions of the ephemeris where it's shaded, where when a planet is retrograde, but otherwise you kind of have to make sure that for all of the planets which can go retrograde, which are essentially all of them except for the sun and moon, um, that uh, a planet is direct versus retrograde. So, for example, in the Mercury column, again, you can see that there is an R next to the glyph on May 30th. And so that means that Mercury has reached its retrograde station where it begins moving in the contrary motion uh, through the zodiac. And then if you were to scroll down, you could see when um, it uh, has a D next to it, which would indicate that it would be on the 23rd that uh, Mercury would station direct. So, Right. So let's um, um, let's back up a little bit. Since yeah. That's <laughs> it's a little getting into Sorry. planetary phenomenon. And just for basic orientation, you mentioned the planets are listed in the top column, uh, sort of horizontally. On the far left, we have the days are listed, um, where it lists the day of the week, Saturday, Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which interestingly and consequently is also connected to astrology since the seven days of the, the week are connected with the seven traditional planets, right? Right. Um, and that's not as clear in English, which is, which is a little annoying, but it's a little clearer in some other languages like French, I think. Yeah, like Mardi. Mardi is Mars Day for Tuesday in uh, in um French. And then in, uh, I think Wednesday is like Mercredi, which sounds more like Mercury. Um, so yeah, it is a little more <laughs> straightforward in some of these other languages. Yeah. So we have the day of the week, um, and then we have the day, and that's how you can locate what day you're trying to look up is just looking up the date. So we know today is Sunday the 16th. So we just look up Sunday the 16th here in the left column, and we've identified what day to look at. Um, the next column lists sidereal time. Um, what is that used for? Uh, that's a really good question. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I don't pay attention to it. I, I'm usually paying attention to the, um, the tropical longitude of the planets indicated by the degrees and minutes. Um, yeah. Same. So let's skip. Columns. 
we'll skip that one. Uh, <laughs> the next column is the sun column. It tells us that at the start of the day, at midnight, uh, the sun started out the day of Sunday, the 16th of May at 25 degrees uh, and 21 minutes and 35 seconds of the sign that is listed first at the top of the column, which is Taurus. So it's still in the sign of Taurus, but it's getting towards the, it's in the halfway through the last, the third decan of Taurus at 25 degrees. So that brings up um, one point right away, which is this ephemeris, which is the what's called the Swiss ephemeris or the Astrodienst ephemeris for 2021. Um, and it's using, it's for the um, tropical zodiac programmed by Dieter Koch and Alois Trendel based on the Swiss ephemeris. Um, it's set for midnight, I believe, for 12 o'clock midnight universal time, which is like Greenwich time. Um, and there's different ephemerises that can start at different times. There's basically usually two choices. There's usually a midnight one, one that starts at midnight, um, and then there's one that starts at noon also in a version of the American ephemeris, which is like the print ephemeris that we use most commonly and that we'll switch to here in a minute. So that's one of the most common questions that people have is just um, what ephemeris to use, whether you should get the midnight version or the noon version. Uh, let me show a picture of that if I have one. So which one do you use? I would, I mean, I, I'm not always looking in the ephemeris anymore because I use software to, you know, just find, you know, where the planets are on a, on a, on a given date. But if I were to uh, pick uh, my ephemeris, I would probably pick one for noon time because, um, especially if I happen to be living closer to Greenwich Mean Time, because then the actual degree and even minute positions could potentially be relevant, more relevant, because you you know you're more likely to be awake in the middle of the day than uh, late at night. Um, so, in in terms of just practical use, now if you were using an ephemeris for, um. Uh, calculating a chart by hand, then uh, I guess it doesn't matter so much which one you use as long as you are aware of what point of the day you're calculating from. Perhaps it would be easier in some ways mathematically to use one that begins from midnight for calculating a chart by hand because then um, you could basically just use 24-hour time you know, to be sure of how many hours you're adding on to uh, to midnight, basically. One of the things I forgot to look up is is the American ephemeris. I'm showing a picture of different versions of that right now. But is the American ephemeris is it set for midnight? Like, is the midnight version set for midnight Greenwich time, or is it set for like New York or something? Uh, it would probably say so <laughs> somewhere on the cover or on the inside. I imagine if it's like being uh published in America for American readers that um, it might be using like uh, Eastern time or something like that. Yeah, you would think so, but I'm not sure if that's true. So let's talk about really quickly. Let's digress about the different like versions of the ephemeris of different types. So there's the Astrodienst one, which is what we were showing, which is like free and you can download as a PDF and you can even print it out, which is super useful for you know getting a handy ephemeris on the cheap. Um, if you want to get a print version, most astrologers I do know eventually do get a print version, and and 
pretty much everybody I know in the US uses the American ephemeris because it's the one that's been around the longest and it's the most widely available. Um, here is this actually, I pulled this off my shelf or I found this yesterday. My first ephemeris, which as Kelly Surtees would say, has been very well loved uh, <laughs> and is basically falling apart just through use. That's one of the downsides of the ephemeris is they tend to be kind of flimsy and they tend to fall apart pretty easily through just like frequent use. It's one common complaint I've heard a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's why I kind of moved away from using uh my my old ephemeris i don't even know if i still have my old ephemeris i've just become so used to um you know using solar fire or other digital resources to to get to it so yeah i mean maybe we should mention that so uh, astrological so it used to be that an ephemeris was really crucial because when people used to calculate charts by hand like 30 or 40 years ago an ephemeris is one of the things that you needed in order to calculate a chart by hand because it would tell you the positions of the planets on any given day of the year. And there's an ephemeris that you could get that you used to have to get um, to calculate this, which was the ephemeris for the American ephemeris for the 20th century, which lists all um, planetary positions from the year 1900 to the year 2000. And so, if somebody if somebody came and gave you their birth data and they said I was born, for example, me, I was born November first, nineteen eighty four, you'd have to, you know, whip that open and look up November first, nineteen eighty four, and figure out where the planets were, and it would tell you where the planets were at the start of the day, and then um, what you end up doing is looking at where the planets are the day afterwards. And then, based on the speed of the planet and how fast it's moving, you can actually infer where it was at the exact hour and moment of the person's birth, um, just based on that, because the planetary movements are so fixed and sort of uh, regular, or sort of reliable. So, the reliability is probably something worth mentioning here at the start: is that the planetary movements we have them down so well in astronomy and, and mathematically. That all of these books can be calculated um, just based on knowing where the planets have been in the past and what their trajectory is. You can sort of plot that out, and we know where they're going to be in 50 years or 100 years, or you can look back and you can calculate that for where they were, you know, a thousand years ago relatively accurately, basically, right? Yeah. On on um uh on astro.com, they have the ephemeris up to 2199. Um, and they, uh, and, uh, on solar fire, I mean, you can go past even, you know, the year 3000, uh, maybe up to 4000. I forget. I think one time I tried to see how far it went. And, um, I think I, I think I got up to maybe around 4000, 5000 AD. Um, but, uh, you can also see you can go backward in time too. They also have these really big files at the top. Um, Going back five thousand BCE, so the math is um, is really precise. Um, you know that we can actually, uh, you know, accurately calculate the positions of the planets for basically any time you could really want uh, to see. Um, right, so, which is which is cool to think about, just the fact that um, the planetary movements are so fixed. Because um, we're talking about these huge, you know, bodies out there, and we're talking about mathematical laws 
that you can calculate them that reliably that far in the past or the future. Now, I know there are some, like I've heard in passing, that there is a certain point where if you go too far into the future, too far in the past, there are some like gravitational things which can throw things off that they can't fully account for. So I think some ephemeris makers do warn about it if you're going a certain you know distance out that it could start to become a little bit unreliable but at least for relatively relatively close distances within a few century or a few centuries it's right. pretty sol- solid well and i imagine a sidereallist might also say that you know precession you know throws off the uh, position of the tropical placements uh you know one degree every 72 years or something so um <laughs> but we're using his tropical astrology, which is its own consistent form of measurement. Yeah, those are more the that's different tropical versus sidereal zodiac, and both of those are still actually very fixed. If you calculate the planetary positions tropically, like that's reliable for centuries, and if you calculate them sidereally, that's reliable. It's just that they shift relative to each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um. So one thing that's funny about that, of course, uh, I meant to do an episode on this someday, is that. Because the planetary positions are so reliable, um, historians and archaeologists have found birth charts from starting in like the fifth century, fourth and fifth century BCE in Mesopotamia, all the way through um, Greek birth charts and then Arabic birth charts and the Hellenistic and then the Roman and eventually the medieval period. You'll find birth charts where astrologers calculated planetary positions for different things in a, in a chart or in a table. And you can date some of those if you just get an ephemeris and then start looking up positions of when that person would have had to calculate that chart. You can kind of like backform uh, when that chart must have been calculated for. And hundreds of, or almost thousands at this point of horoscopes have been dated through that method, through using an ephemeris basically and looking up when the planetary positions were and then narrowing down when that birth chart was cast for. Historians can also date past historical events more precisely if there's ever mention of like a where a solar eclipse happened or something um you know there have been uh several events which have been able to be kind of uh astronomically you know verified or dated you know through yeah the the math of of planetary motion right um and i I have. I originally actually got an ephemeris because I was really. I got into astrology through studying Nostradamus, and in some of his quatrains or predictions, he would date them by planetary positions, supposedly, and say when Mars is in Sagittarius and Saturn is in Capricorn and something else, this event will happen. And so you can pull out an ephemeris and look and see what time periods that will take place in in the future. Um, so I kind of moved away from that, but that was interestingly. One of the reasons, one of the first astrology books I bought was an ephemeris, and I'm glad that I sort of stumbled into it through that way because being able to use an ephemeris is actually very useful, and it gives you a different access point for understanding the astronomy underlying the astrology by getting a more intimate feel for the planetary motions and how the planets move and station retrograde and move into alignment with each other. Or even um, using that to study transits to your own birth chart by sort of having memorized what signs of the zodiac and what degrees your own uh, planetary placements are located in your birth chart. You can see by looking at the ephemeris when those will line up with certain placements in your own chart. 
Yeah, I mean that's definitely the 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 number one use I I have for uh, an ephemeris uh, these days. Not just for myself, but also for clients, etc. Right. So um, that being said, in terms of the books, as you were saying, um, an ephemeris is basically what most astrology software programs are running off of. So on the astrology podcast, we commonly use. Uh, the software program for Windows called Solar Fire, and we commonly use like the animate chart feature where you can. This is the chart of the moment that it's calculating for right now, but you can change it and move it uh, backwards or forwards in days, and it'll just like automatically do the calculations on the fly and tell you when where the planets will be. For example, on June. What 16th of 2021 at 2:56 p.m. It says the moon will be at nine degrees of Virgo, the sun will be at 25 Gemini, and Mercury will be at 17 Gemini. So, what it's actually doing under the hood of this program is it actually has um, a version of the Astro.com ephemeris where they've digitalized it and turned it into a program that computer software developers can integrate into their program. And SolarFire is basically just looking up the ephemeris placements on the fly in the background, and, that, and that's what's underlying this. So even when you're using an astrology software program, you're kind of using an ephemeris, but you're just using an ephemeris that's um, looking up the positions exactly much quicker than you can like flip through the book. And even calculating, yeah, for the exact time and and uh, place, you know, that you're you're looking at. I mean, really, we it's ne- we've never there's never been a better time to be an astrologer in many ways from that respect for being able to just instantly get you know the chart of any given moment from any given place just at a you know in a few clicks. Yeah, I always think about like if you could go back in time to like the second century, like what you would show a second century astrologer like Vadius Valens or Claudius Ptolemy, and I think that would be. The- the coolest feature that would blow their socks off is just animating the chart and showing how you can move forward and backwards or just calculate charts on the fly really quickly compared to you know back then they had to sit down with like a an ephemeris which would have been in like a scroll on papyrus and like look up the planetary positions and you know we'll crank up their antikythera mechanism <laughs> yeah their antikythera right the antikythera mechanism which I still need to do an episode on which actually calculated planetary positions using like a mechanical calculator. Um, another interesting thing, actually, I want to do an episode on. I've been researching a lot lately. Is um, astrolabes, which may have been invented during the like late Roman Empire, sometime during the Greco-Roman period, but became really popular in the medieval period um, under the Arabic-speaking astrologers. And I've been looking into astrolabes lately, and you can calculate a lot of things with them. So not only can you calculate like the ascendant. Degree relatively precisely, but you can calculate the midheaven and all sorts of other things. I also saw recently that there's some astrolabes um, where you can calculate. They'll calculate. They have a dial to calculate house cusps for you. And I actually have a wor- working theory that I've been working on recently that the proliferation of astrolabes and the easy calculation of house cusps with them in the medieval period may have been part of the reason for the shift away from whole sign houses. Because then, when astrology gets reinherited by the um, European astrologers from the 12th century onwards, they inherit it with also this weird technology of astrolabes that can calculate cusps. And there may have been this um, uh, presumption or this uh, 
sort of premise that those are more important than calculating just houses by sign or something like that. And that could have been why Holstein Houses was lost. That's interesting. Um, that would make you wonder then about how how the computer is is changing, how astrological software is changing the way people practice astrology. Because, uh, yeah, it makes sense. I, it, it would be like a way in which the uh, the way that or the tools you have at your disposal kind of affect the kind of astrology you can do. Oh, yeah, totally. And that happens a lot in terms of just um, yeah the technology and, and astrologers are often like early adopters of new technologies so you know computer personal software or personal computers and stuff some very early programs were written for astrology like very early in like the 1960s and 70s um, here's a picture of some astrolabes just to show you and they have different dials that can like calculate different things which is just really cool yeah, pretty so, cool. Yeah, I'll have to do another episode on that at some point <laughs> for both astrolabes and the Antikythera mechanism, which is like a whole other other topic. All right, so we talked about the astro.com ephemeris, we talked about the Swiss ephemeris, and the Swiss ephemeris is also like a program that people can license. And actually, most astrology software programs and most astrology software apps. Uh, license the Swiss, Swiss ephemeris from astro.com where, where they have two options. Either you can do a free version where if you're not charging for your program, they let you use it for free under a certain license. Or if you are going to try to make money off your program, I think you have to pay them like a few hundred dollars or something like that to, to purchase or license the Swiss ephemeris. And then you can do whatever you want with it and build a program or an app. And I think I know most astrology so software programs like um, Solar Fire or other things like that use the Swiss Ephemeris, and then also probably many software apps on like phones and stuff at this point use it as well. So there's computerized ones, but there's also print ephemeris. Uh, so like I said, most astrologers I know use the the American Ephemeris because it's the most widely used in the U.S. Um, in the U.K., I know there's some other ephemerises that are popular, like Raphael's Ephemeris. Um, I'm not sure if there's any others. Are there any others that you can think of? No, not off the top of my head. My the one that I used was always like my mum's copies, which were the American Ephemeris. Okay. So yeah, I didn't. Um, that was that was my first one, and yeah. uh, it was also well loved. Well loved. <laughs> well loved. Yeah. Sticky pages, you know, the whole bit. Right. Uh, so here's the there's the American Ephemeris. There's the 20th century. It used to be that there was basically two versions. There was one for the year 2000 to the year 2050, um, which is basically the American ephemeris for the 21st century. And then there was the 20th century one, which is an entire 100-year span of from 1900 to 2000. So the American ephemeris for the 20th century from 1900 to 2000. Um, more recently in the past, maybe it was like five or 10 years ago, they came out with a new version which is probably the one that most people should get at this point, which is the American Ephemeris for, uh, they call it the Transcentury Edition, and it's for from 1950 to 2050. So that's great because it actually covers both most present you know, years, like 2021 that you're going to be looking up, as well as the next you know, 25 some odd years into the future. So you can look up planetary positions in the future, but also it covers most people that you're going to be looking at 
you know, planetary positions in the past, and basically it will cover anybody that's born after 1950. I remember back in like 2003, 2004, um, having to switch back and forth between a 20th century ephemeris and a 21st century ephemeris because like ran out of years, you know, <laughs> when I was looking at things that uh, happened in the past, and then I want to see things that were happening in the, the future or in the present moment. I remember we, I was still having to switch between the two. Um, so I probably at that point would have really liked having a trans century ephemeris. Yeah. Honestly, that was really annoying in the past because <laughs> then it was like an extra, you couldn't just buy an ephemeris. You'd have to buy two different books in order to cover the time periods. Cause of course I started studying astrology in like 1999 and 2000. So I was like right on the line of the annoying period where you kind of needed both. Yeah. So yeah, transcentral ephemeris. Um, I have the noon version, and let's just like quickly recap so we can give people a strong recommendation. Um, it's hard because it's really a point of preference. I do have the noon version because I believe they are calculating it for Greenwich time. I'll actually look that up. But the difference is just basically: do you want the start of the day to be at midnight? Do you want it to give you planetary positions that start um, at midnight, or do you want it to give the planetary positions starting at in the middle of the day, like noon basically, right? Right. So let me look that up really quickly to see what their reference point is if they're using Greenwich time, which is basically like UK, London time basically, or if they're using some American city is the reference point, like New York, which I don't think they do, but I could be wrong. Are you finding anything? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I um, I was uh, I was investigating the mystery of sidereal time, what that actually refers to in the femoris. It, it's something that actually does become relevant in calculating charts, but it's been so right. long. It's been it's like been, fifteen yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, I so yeah, I've never, I've never really had to do that. Um, so we, we were talking about that, but actually, so there's some um, certification programs where, well, even certification programs aside, let's take it back forty or fifty years. Let's say mid twentieth century, you needed to know how to calculate a chart, an astrological chart by hand using books and tables like the ephemeris. In order to calculate a, a birth chart or a natal chart, so that used to be like a, a gate, a gate or an entryway uh, into astrology. Is you used to be able to need to do some math basically in order to calculate birth charts in order to study astrology, and that could be a bit of a stumbling block for people. But it was like a necessary prerequisite to doing astrology for you know centuries and centuries or thousands of years prior to the past twenty or thirty years, basically. Yeah. Like I said, it's the best time to be an astrologer. <laughs> it's uh, definitely um, made it more accessible. Yeah. So um, even let's say twenty or thirty years ago, um, even now, I think there's still some certification programs where one of the things in order to get certified as a professional astrologer is knowing how to calculate a chart by hand and. I know when I went through Kepler College in the mid 2000s that in order to get one of their actual degrees, um, you had to take a chart calculation test. So I actually learned how to calculate charts by hand when I was at Kepler. 
Um, there's this amazing book that was put together by a couple of Kepler students who graduated, and I think it was their senior project for like their bachelor's degree. Um, I have the like the spiral bound version that they originally put together, but they later put it into a print book that teaches you how to do chart calculations. It's actually a great book if anyone wants to learn how to calculate charts by hand. It's titled Simply Math, A Comprehensive Guide to Easy and Accurate Chart Calculation by Lauren Folks and Lynn Sellon. So this is the book that I learned how to calculate charts at Kepler. Unfortunately, like I remember sitting in Seattle in 2005 learning how to calculate charts, and I actually learned it well enough to calculate like a half dozen, like five or six charts, and I was pretty good at it. But then I think I took a semester off of Kepler, and then I came back and they had me do the test, and I'd like forgotten all of it. So I actually failed my chart calculation test. And I actually just remember the look of disappointment in Lee Lehman's eyes when I uh, turned in this test, just being like, I don't know what I'm doing here at this point. It's been six months and I forgot what I'm doing. It's not actually as hard as you, as, as it, as some people think it could be. It's actually rather doable, especially with a book that kind of holds your hand walking through it like that. Um, it's just repetition and like getting the steps down in order. Did you are you, were you saying earlier that you had learned how to do no, it? No, no, I no, I I never no, I never I never had to. I, I did consider uh trying to do it, but eventually I got a hold of uh astrological software and um it just it just wasn't uh just wasn't necessary. It was interesting though, you know, when I would read through my mum's old uh, astrology books, I would see that she had uh calculated the charts by hand. Um she didn't have any uh printed charts. They were all you know, I, I, she'd actually even done my own chart. She'd she'd um, calculated it by hand, and um, she did it correctly. <laughs> it was all it all matched. Um, so yeah, it's it's apparently it's not too hard to do. Um, but I just haven't uh, gotten around to to actually learning all the steps myself. I think you just um, I'd imagine that you just take the positions of of uh, the positions of midnight and add whatever. Arc would have passed, you know, according to the speed of the planets at that time, and you'd probably get a pretty uh, accurate estimate of of uh, where they were at that moment. Yeah, it's just something like like if you pull up the ephem- the ephemeris is one of the crucial tools. So if you know the person was born on, let's say, Sunday the sixteenth of May, twenty twenty one, we see at the start of the day or at noon that the Sun was at 25 degrees and 50 minutes of Taurus. And then the next day at noon, it was at 26 degrees and 48 minutes. And then you sort of just divide like how far through the day the person was born. And also based on knowing the speed of the sun, and you can end up like calculating pretty precisely where it was at, let's say, 1 28 p.m. that day or what have you. Right. And you basically do the same thing with all of them. So to calculate a chart, you also you need an ephemeris. You also need um, a time zone atlas, because one of the more frustrating things about astrology birth times is that due to daylight savings time, whether that's an effect or not, uh, can offset and can really change um, the rising, the ascendant and the rising sign and rising degree um, because daylight savings is in effect or not in effect in different ways in different locations. Like I think you're in a state where it's kind of weird, right? Or there is no daylight savings? In yeah, in in Arizona they do not have any daylight saving time. So half of the year we're synced with 
uh, Pacific time, and then the other half of the year we're synced with uh, Mountain time, and um, it's very very frustrating. Uh, I know that uh, Florida has now considered is, is wants to have um, daylight saving all year round. So this is just really, really uh, frustrating and confusing. And um, I'm always hoping that basically there's someone out there keeping track of all this for astrological software to make sure, like, you know, uh, these changes are being accounted for, you know, in um, in the software because uh, it's, it's, um, it's kind of terrifying, you know, that you might be an hour off uh, basically, um, putting in a, in a chart and I always try to be aware of those, uh, sorts of changes, especially when I'm like doing elections or something and I'm just like zipping through dates when I'm sort of be aware that I'm, I'm not, uh, accidentally overlooking, um, those time zone changes. So yeah, that's a, that's a huge headache. Yeah. Well, well, luckily in the past 20 or 30 years, since some of that's become computerized, it's documented much better if people were born from like the 1980s onwards it's usually pretty reliable the digital records of whether daylight savings was in effect or was not in effect but prior to that it gets a lot more dicey um so that's why in order to calculate charts by hand you need another book um this one is the american atlas expanded fifth edition us longitudes and latitudes time zone changes and time zones um, which the most important thing that it does is you can look up your location in the city that the person was born in, and it'll tell you whether daylight savings was in effect or not in effect at that time. And some of those are tricky because there's like some weird ones in the 1940s where astrologers have had to research them very thoroughly. Where if you're born in Chicago in like the 1940s, they had some like rule about like whether daylight savings was in effect, but that you didn't write it down on the birth certificate. Or maybe it wasn't an effect, but you write it down as it as if it is. Like I forget what the specific rule was, but there's some really bizarre things that happened in different years that astrologers have had to expend like a great deal of effort to try to document in order to make sure the charts are calculated correctly. And this is another thing where this was up until you know recently was just available as a print book that you had to get in order as one of the tools in order to calculate a birth chart by hand but nowadays the acs that atlas and other atlases like the acs atlas have been programmed and are like computer programs that are underlying some of the chart calculating software like solarfire or astrogold or even um, astro.com i think they use the acs atlas for historical time zone lookups and things like that. Yeah. All right. So um, that's it. And then the last thing is also used to need a table of houses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to calculate um, the ascendant and midheaven and the intermediate house cusps, depending on if you're using Placidus or um, other forms of house division that require that information. So that's another book that you would need to know or have on hand in order to look it up to calculate a chart by hand. Yeah, I remember when I was first telling my mom about whole sign houses, and she was like, "Oh, do you need the tables of houses for that?" I'm like, "Nope, you don't." <laughs> right? <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, but I have all these tables of houses," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's nice. You can keep them." <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that was funny that Holden James Holden said in his book at one point, "A History of Horoscopic Astrology," he, he said one of the reasons why Placidus is the default at this point that most astrologers use is just because that was the only 
table of houses in like the earliest 20th century that was still in wide circulation. And so most astrologers just defaulted to what was available or what they learned when they first got into astrology, which I always thought was really interesting. And we see a little bit of a continuation of that where Placidus still tends to be the default for most people because it's the default in most astrology software programs like astro.com, for example. Whenever you go to astro.com, they calculate a chart, it'll default to Placidus. So most people are used to seeing their chart in that and will tend to stick with that as their sort of default. Right. So that's an interesting side thing in terms of the availability of things. All right. So let's go back to our ephemeris and our how to. One of the things that you brought up and mentioned is retrograde motion. Um, and let's start talking about that because it's one of the things that's useful. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this episode is even though you can calculate charts just using the animate chart feature and there's nothing wrong with that and that's fine. Um, there is a different perspective that the ephemeris can give you by having all the planetary positions and starting to get a sense for how the planets move and what their speeds are and different things like that. And while you can see that and get a perspective on that by animating the chart, there's just a slightly different perspective that you can get by seeing it laid out in an ephemeris um, over a period of time at a glance. So I'm going to show the American ephemeris, uh, the transcentury ephemeris for May of 2021. And um, as you were saying earlier, one of the things that you can see is retrograde stations and retrograde periods. And one of the things I like about the American ephemeris and actually makes it a bit superior to the Swiss ephemeris or the astro.com, the free ephemeris, is that it actually shades the retrograde periods, which I think is a great feature that I really like. So here's the month of May 2021. We can see Saturn, the Saturn glyph in the top right corner. Uh, Saturn started out on May 1st at 13 degrees of Aquarius and 7 minutes and 6 seconds. And it starts moving for forward a little bit, but Saturn's already moving very slow at this point. Um, on the 2nd of May, it gets to 13 degrees and 9 minutes. And then the next day, 13 degrees and 11 minutes. So it's only moving forward very slowly. And that's the reason for that is not just because Saturn is a slow planet, but also because we see later in the month, Saturn is getting ready to station retrograde on the 22nd of May at 13 degrees and 31 minutes of Aquarius. And then after that point, you know, up to that point, we can see that it's increasing. In minutes, so it's moving forward in Aquarius, but after that point, it starts um, decreasing and going backwards uh, in the sign of Aquarius. So, uh, if you're looking at this and you know, like that, someone has like their Sun, for example, at 13 degrees Aquarius, then you know, <laughs> you know that okay, uh, May going into June 2021 is maybe going to be a uh, a heavy time, <laughs> to put it lightly, uh, since Saturn will be, uh, you know, bearing down and spending so much time, you know, on that one degree, really scrutinizing whatever is at that degree in people's charts. Right. So that's one thing that you can do. It's an ephemeris. One of the tips and tricks for an ephemeris is you can use it to study your own transits by um, just knowing in the back of your head or having a picture of your chart next to you and knowing what degrees your planetary placements are in 
Once you have those memorized, when you look at an ephemeris, one of the first things I think that most astrologers do is they start thinking of some of those degrees or some of those sign placements within the context of their own chart. So, um, you know, I know, for example, because I have Aquarius rising, I know Saturn and Jupiter going through Aquarius uh, is my rising sign or my first whole sign house. Or, like, for example, we see here that Jupiter had moved into Pisces by the 14th or on the 14th of May when it moved into zero degrees of Pisces. So I know that Jupiter moved into my second whole sign house in that day, for example. Or what, what house is that for you? Uh, Ju- uh, Jupiter moved into my eighth whole sign house because I'm a Leo rising. Okay. So that's one really basic thing is an ephemeris allows you to see sign changes. So when the planets will change signs and um, you can immediately relate that back to a person's chart and knowing, for example, what whole sign house different planets or what house a planet will transit into at different times based on that information. Uh, but then the next one that you were mentioning was also you can know if you know what degree and not just sign, but also degree the planets are placed in, you can know when you're going to have exact transits at different points in time. So you mentioned, for example, if your sun was at 13 degrees of Aquarius, then you would know that Saturn is stationing right on top of it um, in May of 2021. Exactly. That's. I mean, this is this is when the magic happens. This is when you can. This is when uh, you know these. Uh, these glyphs, you know, just turn from being, um, you know, marks on a page in an incomprehensible, you know, morass of numbers into, uh, sort of real, actionable, and uh, in some ca- in some cases, uh, exciting or uh, dreadful um, <laughs> moments where you, you know, realize, you know, what uh, may be coming up or. Uh, uh, you know whether that should be uh, something to be kind of more excited about or something to be uh, a little more wary of. So yeah, it's when it becomes exciting. I wish I could show this, but like in my old uh, ephemeris, the first one that I got. Let me see if I can show this. But I had I would like go through and mark, and I would use a highlighter to like highlight different dates when stuff was happening. And when it would be hitting my chart in certain ways. So it's kind of fun now because I got this in like 2000, 2000, 2001 is like my second astrology book. And I, I had gone through and I had highlighted like different years in the future and like circled certain transits that I knew I would be having at that point that I was curious about or that I thought would be big transits. Wow. So it looks like I was curious like six years. In advance about what Neptune conjunct my Moon in May of two thousand eight would be, wow, which is fun. That's uh, yeah, you just can't do this with a PDF. <laughs> this is uh, this is such an interesting um, kind of retro. Like you know, it reminds me of uh, yeah, my earliest days in astrology. It's made me realize just how much of my uh, use of an ephemeris is really digital now, right. Yeah, and it's like you can highlight in the, and I, th- I think I'll do that in a minute in the astro.com one, but it's a little, it's a little different. There's a little difference having a printed one. I was curious in 2002, as like a what 16 year old astrologer, 20 year old astrologer, what Pluto conjunct my Mars would be like in January of 2018, and various other future transits. So that is one of the cool things that I will 
argue that you can do with a print ephemeris is you can write notes and you can highlight it um, pretty easily. And there's something useful about that just in terms of watching your own transits or if you're looking at um, once you know, like let's say a partner's transits, like what their placements are, you know that when certain planets get to certain degrees, that that's going to be a sensitive spot in their chart for better or worse. Um, and, and different things like that. Well, you can get a honeycomb <laughs> and uh, sort of does it all for you. But you want to know how to read an ephemeris so you can understand, you know, anyone's transits that you're trying to look at. Yeah. Um, another thing, in addition to just looking at transits, so you, you can look at transits, and also that'll tell you when the transits happen. It won't tell you what the transit's going to be about. So that's when you get a book like Rob Hand's Planets in Transit, for example, which gives delineations for. All of the major planet combinations, and that was published back in the 1970s. It's a little bit dated at this point. He's been supposed to publish like a new version that represents like an updated version of planets and transits for for a few years now. And I hear it's going to come out at some point. I don't know when because it seems like it's going to be it's been about to come out for several years now. But hopefully that'll come out before too long. And I'm sure there's other books out there that do something similar as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one other thing that you can do with the ephemeris also that you, you should keep in mind is that it will tell you and allow you to spot at a glance when different configurations between the planets will happen in the sky. And that's actually super useful. So, for example, what I mean by that is we can see here in May of 2021 with Saturn at 13 degrees of Aquarius, um, anytime another planet gets to like 13 something of another sign. It's probably going to be making an aspect with Saturn at that degree. So one of the aspects that happened earlier this month in May is that Mercury was kind of zipping through Gemini, and it came up to 13 degrees of uh, Gemini here on the 12th of May. So on that day, we know that when Mercury hits 13 degrees of Gemini, it would be, it would have formed and it did form an exact trine with Saturn at 13 degrees of Aquarius. So looking up things like that, like aspects in the sky or when different planets formed aspects becoming with each other is an incredibly useful piece of what you can do with an ephemeris as well. Absolutely. Um and um well I yeah, I won't go into our the thing other things we had sort of planned to talk about um in terms of recognizing like uh connections across time as well. With the planets, because I think one thing that can be uh, tricky, especially if you're first starting out looking at your transits, you might uh, there might be a tendency to attach uh, a lot of importance to all of these transits. But I think it's important to understand which ones happen more commonly and which ones are more rare. So obviously, like outer planetary transits, just because those planets are so slow, um, it is kind of more significant when an outer planet makes. A significant aspect to one of your personal planets because um, there may only be one of those that happens in your lifetime, you know. So it gives you, though, it's sort of helpful to know how regular some of these aspect patterns can occur because it gives you an idea of how common or uh, or how unique uh, a given aspect or transit is. Yeah, so that's a great. Advantage of an ephemeris and a good thing that it teaches you as an astrologer is the speed of of the planetary movements and how fast or how slow different planets are. Um, so, for example, the sun—you know—the sun takes 
um, a year to go through the entire zodiac, and it spends about a month in each sign, and about it moves at a rate of about one degree uh, each day. So we can see at the top of the May ephemeris that on the first of the month it was at 11 degrees of Taurus, then on the second of the month it was at 12 degrees of Taurus, then on the third of the month it was at 13 Taurus, and so on and so forth. So it's literally just moving through about one degree per day. The moon is, because it's so fast, it's a little bit harder and more annoying to attract to track with an ephemeris because the moon will move through the sign, a sign of the zodiac in like two or three days, basically. It, it kind of zips through them pretty quickly. And so the ephemeris is not as useful for tracking the moon necessarily, except roughly like what sign it will be in on a given day. Um, but the ephemeris, it, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, yeah, you're right. It is, it is kind of harder to use the ephemeris for tracking the moon, but like one thing to kind of be aware of is if, when the moon is in the same sign as the sun, generally speaking, you know that that's close to a new moon. And if the moon is uh, in the sign which is opposite to the sign of the sun, then you know that that transit is actually a full moon. So it might help if you're looking at the ephemeris to, you know, sort of circle those dates because, you, you know, that isn't just, that isn't just a case of, the moon transiting through that sign, but it's the one time of the year where it might be a new moon in that sign or a full moon in that sign, which is, um, you know, while those are annual events, you know, the, uh, the moon might go through Taurus, you know, 12 times in a year, but it'll only be a full moon once in the year, maybe twice, you know, if it's one of those, uh, blue moons, but, um, uh, yeah, so you, it's uh, it's it's less useful uh, for tracking the moon, but it, I think it helps to kind of know um, generally. You know, okay, is this when the moon's brightest, or is this when it's you know at this uh, renewal point with the sun in that sign? Yeah, that's an excellent point, and that's actually again another advantage of the American ephemeris, and why I still recommend getting it is. So one, you're right, you can approximate when the new and full moons are going to take place just by glancing at the main part of the ephemeris. So here in May of 2021, we know the sun in the first half of the month is moving through Taurus. So then we know that when the moon catches up to and goes through that same sign, when the moon goes through Taurus, that that'll be a new moon because the new moon happens when the moon conjoins the sun. And that's the start that both the end of the lunar cycle and the start of a new basically one month or 30 day long cycle. So here we can see that the moon moves into Taurus on the 10th of May. Uh, it goes into Taurus there and then um, it moves out of that sign a few days later. It's in Gemini by the 13th of May. So we know that sometime in that two or three day period that the moon would have conjoined the sun and created a new moon. So one of the things that's very useful about the American ephemeris is down at the very bottom of the page, it actually has a very handy um, section where it lists tables for the lunar phases and eclipses. So this is down in the bottom right, and we should kind of give an overview of this entire section, but let's, for our purposes, jump right to the one we're talking about now where it says phases and eclipses, and it says the day, hour, and minute on the left um, and then it says what the lunar phase is and what sign it happened in. So the one that we're talking about right now, the new moon in Taurus, it says that that will have occurred exactly 
on the 11th of May at 1900 hours, which is what, like 7 p.m., at 21 degrees of Taurus in 18 minutes. And then it gives the symbol, which is a circle that's dark or filled in, which is the symbol for a new moon. So it's actually telling you exactly what degree. If you just look at the bottom of the ephemeris, the exact degree of the new moon, as well as the day and roughly the time that it will occur, which is pretty hand handy information to have at a glance, right? Yeah. So um, each month it will show the new moon, and then the full moon is a circle that's white uh, or is not filled in. Um, because that's when the moon is at its brightest and it's giving off light. And we see that that will happen on the 26th of May at five degrees of Sagittarius in 26 minutes. And of course, what's important about this one is that that is not just going to be a full moon, which is when the moon is exactly opposite the sun, uh, but it's also going to be a lunar eclipse because that lunation is taking place very close to the nodes. And that's what that symbol just below that is, where it's like a it's like an opposition with two filled in dark circles. And that's the symbol, at least in the American ephemeris, for a lunar eclipse. And then there's also a solar eclipse, which looks like a conjunction symbol that's filled in. And that happens just below that at on the 10th of June um, at what is it, 19 degrees of Gemini? Yeah. I'm curious what those, uh, I'm not sure what the, the T and A mean next to those um, eclipses. It's like total think, total versus annular, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's another handy thing that you can do and approximate with an ephemeris is also just remembering in the back of your head that if a new moon or a full moon takes place in the vicinity, I think it's within like 15 to 18 degrees, depending on uh, different definitions, but around that range, if a new moon or full moon takes place within those degrees, then it will be an eclipse as well. The yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh, if a solar eclipse, uh, if a new moon happens within about seventeen degrees of the north or south node, then it's a solar eclipse. Obviously, the closer that a new moon happens to the node itself, then the more total that solar eclipse would be. Uh, if it's further away, then it's going to be partial. Um, and then the lunar eclipses happen if a full moon is within about eleven degrees of the north or south node. I'm not sure why. They're different, but the um, yeah, but it's about seventeen for a solar eclipse and about eleven degrees for a full moon to be a lunar eclipse. And uh, so you know, like generally, yeah, if it's close enough, you could be reasonably sure it's uh, it's going to be uh, a, an eclipse. We have debates about this all the time. Austin and I do on the forecast episodes because he tends to use a tighter orb than I do. In terms of eclipses as a visual phenomenon versus of it, like is it actually is the moon actually eclipsing the sun, or is it just like barely eclipsing it? And I tend to use a wider orb because sometimes, for example, we get questions like, um, "Did the lunar eclipse that happened in Sagittarius last June on like June fifth or sixth was that actually an eclipse, or was it too far away?" And sometimes I start seeing like major. Stuff happening around those times um, that does seem very eclipsy to me, so that I'll take it to be an eclipse. Whereas somebody that uses a tighter orb might not think that that eclipse series starts until later in the year, like last November and December, was when that eclipse series really got going. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably there. Probably is some layer of interpretation you could give to whether 
something is like a total eclipse versus like a partial eclipse. Um, I would think that, yeah, it would be, um, yeah, different levels consistent of with, uh, yeah, with, with, uh, the level of the eclipse is happening. Yeah. So let's look back at our ephemeris though, because that's another thing you can eyeball and approximate by looking at where the node is and the American. Ephemeris- I like that they put the node right there. Usually sometimes on the ephemeris, they'll put the nodes at the end, you know, after Pluto. But okay. it's nice that they put it next to the moon because it allows you to see more at a glance. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. know that eclipses are going to happen within a, you know, somewhere between like zero to, um, Let's just say 15 20. Degrees. Yeah. If you just use a standard like that, then you know, okay, eclipses can either happen in uh, uh, late Taurus or late Gemini, um, or a lunar eclipse could maybe happen in um, uh, late Scorpio, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this time it's just a lunar eclipse in Sagittarius and then a solar eclipse in Gemini. Yeah. So. Here's the so we've got the sun glyph in the top top column. We've got the moon glyph. Then we've got the true node here, and it starts out the month at 11 degrees of Gemini. The true node is kind of weird because it'll go retrograde and direct at different points pretty frequently every like week or couple of weeks. Um, but it's going through Gemini, so we know then that when the sun goes into Gemini, which happens by the 21st of May. That when the moon catches up to and either conjoins or opposes the sun and creates a new moon or full moon, that when both of the, the luminaries are also in the same sign as the node or opposite to the node, that that's also going to create an eclipse. So um, we see the moon go into Sagittarius around the 26th and 27th of uh, May. And so we know then that it's going to be transiting through the sign opposite to the sun. Which is Gemini, and because the true node is in the sign of Gemini, that means there's going to be an eclipse in that range of days right around there when the moon is transiting through Sagittarius. And you can use the degree of the sun to know approximately what degree that should happen at. So we know that it would be a lunar eclipse in Sagittarius, uh, approximately around five to six degrees of Sagittarius. So it's kind of nice to just be able to, you know, see that at a glance. So let me show people what that looks like on in Solar Fire in an actual chart, because I know this is probably sounding or looking a little bit abstract, but here's the chart for now, and then let's move it forward. So we see the sun move into Gemini here around May 20th. The moon is moving through Virgo, then it's moving through Libra, then Scorpio. We see the south node there already in Sagittarius, and we see the north node in Gemini. So the sun is like coming up on the north node and conjoining it. And then here, when we get to the moon going through Sagittarius, when it hits about five degrees of Sagittarius, it exactly opposes the sun. And when the moon opposes the sun exactly, that's an exact full moon. When the moon is at its brightest, and because that full moon, that opposition with the sun is taking place within five degrees of a conjunction with the south node, between the moon and the south node, or you could also say between a conjunction with the sun and the north node, that that is a lunar eclipse. So it's like a special full moon. It's just not just a normal full moon, but because it's happening with the nodes, it's a special one. Right. All right. So. That is visually what it's looking like. And then if we keep moving that forward, um, 
a couple of weeks, we see the moon keeps moving through Capricorn, then Aquarius, then it spends two or three days in Pisces, Aries, Taurus, and then eventually the moon catches up with the sun in June and conjoins it at 19 degrees of Gemini. So sun, moon conjoins the sun at 19 degrees of Gemini on June 10th, and the node, the north node is at 10 degrees of Gemini at that point. So the north node so is So it's within only, 17 degrees, yeah, so it's going to be a solar eclipse. Yeah, so solar eclipse whenever the sun and moon conjoin each other within roughly in the vicinity of the north or south node. So um, that's like visually, if you were to calculate the charts, what it looks like in the charts. But just going back to the ephemeris, you know, we kind of showed how you can eyeball that just by looking it up or by using that really handy um, lunar table that's at the very bottom of the American ephemeris, which I always loved as a little feature, just the ability for it to tell you exactly when and what degree and what sign and date certain eclipses are taking place in. And one other thing that's kind of useful to remember about eclipses is that they happen very close to the same degree, almost very close to the same date every 19 years. So if you, presuming you've lived long enough <laughs> to be able to go back, um, you know, if you want to know what a given eclipse might be about for you, it might help to look back 19 years almost to the day. And there should be an eclipse which happens very close to that degree. And that same, approximately that same date. It might be a little different, um, by like a degree or so, but it will be very, very close. So, um, that's, uh, it's, it's useful to know that because then you can just think, Oh, I wonder what this lunar eclipse will be about. Well, all right. Take the year, subtract 19 and, uh, you can flip back through your ephemeris to go right to that same, uh, lunar eclipse and, uh, and uh, see what else is sort of happening in that time, and and try to think of what uh, what themes relate to the house it's happening in uh, to to get some insight into what that could be about for you. So it's you know it's really it's not just math and numbers. It's it's uh, you know it's about something real you know in your life. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty useful for individual months. There's also. Um, you know, there's different. So this is the American ephemeris, the main one that lists planetary positions for different time periods. There's also um, other types of specialized or specialty ephemerides, which list different things. One of the ones that I really like uh, is a book by the same company. I believe it's by ACS. That's titled Tables of Planetary Phenomenon by Neil F. Mickelson. Revisions by Reek Pottinger. And one of the things that it has, I don't have a picture of this, so I'll just show it on the video on my webcam, is it has a several page thing that lists all solar and lunar eclipses from the year 1700 through the year 2050, so that you can look at like a century of eclipses and what sign and degree they take place in, as well as what date, basically at a glance. So let me see for those watching the video version if I can show this. Can you see that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty cool as a secondary little book that you can get. This lists all sorts of other little miscellaneous useful ephemeris things are. Because if, if an ephemeris is just a table of planetary data, there's many different ways that you can show the data or show different things, different 
planetary alignments and different things that you want to focus on in different date ranges. So what an ephemeris is, even though typically when astrologer mentions ephemeris, it's exactly what we're looking at with the American ephemeris is like a monthly and yearly and daily listing of the data by the months. Um, there's different ways to cut the data, and ephemeris can be many different things depending on what you want to look at. Um, yeah, I was, I was also going to say that I think uh, solar fire, you can also look back at eclipses going back you know, thousands of years, and you can also filter through those solar eclipses to find ones which maybe aspect a particular point in your chart or um, isolate the solar eclipses and lunar eclipses which belong to like the same Saros cycle. So, um, you know, even the software you can also kind of use in this way to to look at um, uh, those solar eclipses kind of at a glance. Yeah, and I think um, Astrodot or Solar Fire actually allows you to generate your own ephemeris for different things. And there's a little like part of it that'll allow you to generate depending on what data you want to list and what frequency and things like that. And uh, astroseek.com also allows you to generate your own ephemeris uh, according to whatever specifications you want. Um, yeah, it has many different options on there. And you can even uh, use some of the tools on Astroseek to like find when a particular planet returns to a degree, you know, a certain degree. Mm -hmm. um so and there's it was also like an ephemeris search engine so like if you wanted to like find a uh, a time when this planet was in one sign and another planet's in a different sign you could it'll automatically tell you the periods of time where in the ephemeris you know your search parameters match the uh planetary positions at that time yeah which is really good for like electional purposes if you're trying exactly. to you're like I need to pick a chart when Mercury is in Gemini and Venus is in Taurus show me when that's going to happen in the future and unfortunately like some alignments you're going to have to wait for like a decade or something like that so it may be a ways out but sometimes there's ways you can use that more profitably for short distance things right right or um, Solar Fire also has a feature that was really useful in my research over the past decade for searching different planetary placements in birth charts. So it can look through all your saved files and then pull up. I would have it pull up like, show me all charts where Mercury is in Scorpio in the ninth house, or um, where Mercury is in Scorpio and Saturn is in Aquarius, and that would show all charts that have those placements. Um, in my files and whatever files I had saved. Yeah. So, um, in episode 215, when Lisa Scheim and I did an episode on interpreting solar and lunar eclipses in your birth chart, transiting eclipses based on which house they fall in, I actually created a little ephemeris of solar and lunar eclipse dates, which you can pull up that's super handy as a single page reference for. Just where eclipses will fall if uh, having a single page eclipse ephemeris is something that you'd like to have. So it pulls up a little PDF and then it just shows like all eclipses for um, relatively long time frame. I'm surprised you haven't plugged your calendar, Chris. A <laughs> calendar? Oh, right. <laughs> right. That, that's sort of quasi, uh, it's sort of like a, a really, um, you know, the, the Cliff Notes uh, version of ephemeris for a given year. If you get the uh, astrology podcast uh, yearly calendar, 
Yeah, let me show. So I guess that is kind of an ephemeris as the the way we present the data is just, for example, on the forecast episodes, we show the month of May, and then we show when different planets will move into the signs, like that Mercury goes into Gemini in the third, or Venus into Gemini in the eighth, New Moon in Taurus on the eleventh, or that solar eclipse on the twenty-sixth. We're using basically like an ephemeris to calculate that data and then just presenting the ephemeris data in this different visual format. So yes, that is from a calendar that we do sell on the Astrology Podcast <laughs> website. Available now. The, available yeah. now at fine fine astrology calendar stores everywhere. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get back focus. Um, where are we at? We talked about eclipses. Um, there's other data at the bottom of the American ephemeris that is maybe worth mentioning really quickly to talk about what other things you'll find on an ephemeris page and what other handy guides that it gives you. Um, so let me share again my screen to show the bottom because I know we we mentioned the lunar phases and we mentioned how it shows the new moon and the full moons. It also shows the like first quarter moon and third quarter moon. So here it says on the third of May, the what third quarter moon occurred at 13 degrees of Aquarius and 35 minutes. So it's showing basically like the halfway point between new moon and full moon as well. Um, so that's all under the phases and eclipses section. Other stuff that is shown um, over on the far left, it has a section for astro data. Um, what is the first? Oh, that's like, uh, like that should be for declination. Yeah, I think it, when it said it's northern. Um, actually, that wouldn't be at at its um zero north. I think that's when it would be. Yeah, it's zero declination. Uh, going yeah. north, north, and then zero declination when it's going south. I'm surprised though they wouldn't show the dates of when it's at its maximum or minimum, but I guess that's still useful. Um, if you want more declination data, it's available on astro.com. They have a, a specific section for looking at the declination or latitude of a given planet. Like a declination ephemeris? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. available on the on that same page you were showing. Okay. So that's yeah, that's more of an intermediate advanced concept, but also there under astrodata it shows the dates of any planetary stations. So, so it shows that Saturn stations retrograde on the 23rd of the month, and that Mercury stations retrograde on the 29th of the month. Um, then in, below that, it's showing Moon, zero north declination. It shows Saturn squaring Uranus, will go exact on the 14th of the month. Um, elsewhere, it shows Jupiter stationing retrograde on the 20th, Mercury stationing direct on the 22nd, Neptune stationing retrograde on the 25th. So in the, at the data section, it's showing stations and some aspects between outer planets that are rare. Um, next, in the next section, it has a section on planetary ingresses, and it'll tell you the day, the hour, and the minute when certain planets change signs. So, for example, it says that Mercury goes into Gemini on the 4th of May at 2 hours and 49 minutes. So, that's like 2 a.m., 2.49 a.m. Uh, it also lists like Ceres goes into Taurus. That's, that's actually one thing I don't like about the more recent versions of the American ephemeris is it used to just be planets in the main section, but now it has like squeezed series into like the very middle in between Mars and Jupiter, um, which if you don't use series is a little bit annoying. There it is in 
that version. I guess for people that do use Asteroids, that's super useful to have right there. But the only thing that annoyed me is it made all the other planetary sections smaller because they had to like squeeze in one additional body. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah's just shouldn't exist, right? That's <laughs> well, it is. I guess it is the biggest asteroid. That's one thing I was right. surprised about is just how how massive it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, to all it's the really, it's kind of. I mean, it's it's a little strange almost that it got left out, but I mean, we only we only first even observed like in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, it's but it is pretty big. <laughs> yeah, so there's series and. Um, going back to that, it shows other ingresses of the planets. The next section, it shows last aspect, I think, of the moon. Yeah, so on the yeah. second, the last aspect that the moon made was a trine with Mercury in Aquarius, or from Aquarius, right? Is that what it's saying? Uh, y- yes, because... Venus is in Gemini at that point, and it's sextile from Earth. So the sign is the sign of the moon, and showing the aspect that it's making with the planet. So it's not telling you the sign of the planet; it's telling you the sign of the moon. Got it. And is that I okay? Think. And and, it, and then here it says the last aspect. Oh wait a second! Wait a second! No, 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 no! So wait, I I know I got that wrong. That. This must be at the ingresses of the moon because it's not conjunct Pluto. Oh, it, okay. It's, it's showing it's showing the sign that it's ingressing into, and then yeah. it's showing the, the last aspect that it made before it ingressed into that. That's sign. correct. That makes sense because it would have conjoined Pluto just before entering Aquarius because Pluto is in like Capricorn. You mean that was confusing? It, it really should be more of a <laughs> boundary between that, but um, yeah, yeah. It's so I guess that's more useful for. Like there's some modern astrologers that really focus on like the last aspect of the moon, um, in for some like electional things or things like that. Right. Well, I would also think that would tell you, um, that would also indicate when the moon is out of, um, not out of bounds, uh, void of course, according to that definition. Okay. Right. By like what the last planet it was uh, that it asked. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so that's good to know. And then finally, on the far right of the American Ephemeris, it has a section for astrodata, and it it gives like the, on the very first of the month that it lists the Julian day. Um, what is the SVP? SVP. That's uh, I, for, I forget. I um, don't know the Galactic Center. That's kind of funny to put. Um, you know, it doesn't change <laughs> it like over very long periods of time. It's been at twenty seven Sag for like uh, decades and decades and decades. Like it's not, it's really not going to move that much. <laughs> so, so G- um, GC GC is galactic center, so the center of our galaxy. Uh, twenty seven Sag oh eight point two. Although look at this, it does change. In June, on June first, a month later, it's at twenty seven oh eight point three. So I guess it's moving <laughs> extremely slowly. Yes. Um, so Galactic Center, then it lists a bunch of asteroids, including Eris, which it says is at twenty four seventeen Aries, um, Chiron, uh, Pallas. Vesta. Is that Juno? Well, <laughs> pa- Pallas is in the top, the like yeah. diamond looking one, and then, then Vesta's like the arrows pointing down. Um, what's that one? I don't use them enough. 
Uh, Ju- Juno. <laughs> I, I bet a bunch of like modern, like more modern oriented astrologers would probably be really laughing at this right now. Like, look at the classical, you know, tr- the triad chats, you know, stumbling on their uh, symbols for the asteroids. <laughs> yeah. So um, for for some of these, like, you know, this is how you used to look up some of the asteroids, and then it also gives the position of the mean node in case you wanted to use the mean node instead of the true node. Um, there's also a whole separate asteroid ephemeris. I couldn't find mine because I actually bought one like really early on in my astrological studies. Um, so I don't have a picture of that, but that's another like specialized ephemeris you can get one for for asteroids. Um, all right, so let's go back to our outline and what have we not covered at this point? <laughs> so we've talked yeah, we've about kind planetary of, kind cycles, of, kind of uh, dotted around here and there, but um. Yeah, it's a little meandering, but that's okay. We're trying to throw in some of the important points as we go. One of the things you can look up in that an ephemeris is useful to give you a sense of is planetary cycles so, and how long, giving you a sense for how long it takes for a planet to complete a cycle. If you have an entire like 50-year span in time or like a 100-year span in time, you can flip forward and backward by years, and you can see that the moon moves relatively fast and it takes a month to go through all 12 signs of the zodiac, or that the sun takes a year to go through all 12 signs of the zodiac, or that Jupiter takes 12 years, or Saturn takes between 27 to 30 years, for example. So getting a sense for the longer-term cycles of the planets is a really useful thing. Absolutely. And even with the even with the faster planets there are those more long-term uh cycles like you know we mentioned that eclipses are going to happen uh very close to uh the same positions every 19 years um a given moon position will also take very uh it is also very close uh to where it will be every three years every three years and subtracting three days um will give you uh the sun and moon very close to where uh, they were originally, which can be interesting if you're in trying to think about, um, you know, what a given new moon might be like, or a given full moon might be like. Then you, you know, you can think back in those sort of three-year intervals as well. Um, you know, with Mercury, Mercury uh, ta- only takes about like 88 days to go around the sun, you know, heliocentrically, but zodiacally, you know, it takes um, approximately a year. And it's important to know that there's like three Mercury retrogrades a year. So in some ways you can see how people in some ways overblow the importance of Mercury retrogrades because there's you know there's three of them in a year and um so it's a pretty common uh kind of retrograde but it is kind of important to know that um a retrograde in a given sign will take place uh, like a Mercury retrograde happening in Gemini for example where it will be later this month in June 2021 um rather May 2021 into June uh, it'll there, there was also a Mercury retrograde in Gemini, just like it, twenty years ago in two thousand and one, and there'll be another one a lot like it in twenty forty one, uh, because there's this twenty year cycle with Mercury and the Sun where they come back to pretty close to the same positions they were at, um, in those sort of twenty year intervals. You can even break it down a little further. Um, every six, seven, thirteen, and fourteen. Uh, year intervals as well. Um, the Sun and Mercury end up coming back to the same positions uh, that they were. So um, it's sort of helpful to know that within a given twenty-year period, there are 
about one, two, three, four, five, uh, five to six retrogrades of Mercury that will be taking place in that same sign, um, in that same area. So that just gives you a bit of, um, context. If you're looking at a given Mercury retrograde, you can immediately think, oh, you know, the soonest one that happened in that same area, you know, would be, uh, either the year before, um, or six years before. So it just gives you, just knowing those numbers, having some of those numbers in your head just helps you identify those sort of connections across time, uh, with Mercury knowing, okay, the same sorts of things that happened in this previous one may have a tendency to come back, you know, around the time that Mercury makes the same sort of phase. Um, yeah, and I think some of those ones, like, so you're talking about like recurrence, um, cycles or synodic cycles when the planet's right. position coincides with the sun's position and that exactly. happens with mercury in the 20 that's a really reliable one um, yeah. even what you were saying at the beginning of knowing for example like basic astrology really early on is just learning and knowing the frequency of mercury retrograde periods and seeing how relatively not just common but regular they are so for example pulling up the astro.com ephemeris and seeing mercury that's not Mercury. Seeing Mercury um, go retrograde at 24 degrees of Gemini at the end of May, and then the fact that it's going to be retrograde for about three weeks, which is about how long it's always retrograde for, and then eventually stationing direct on the 23rd of June. And then if we scroll, we see Mercury go direct and it starts picking up speed again from 16 to 17 to 18 Gemini. And then if we jump forward a few months, We'll eventually see Mercury station retrograde again here at 25 degrees of Libra in September. And then it's retrograde for three weeks until it stations direct here on the 19th of October. So it's like, a, you know, relatively a thing that happens three times a year, always for about three weeks. And, and I think it might be helpful too, because I think there are some people who tend to kind of melt down when they see these Mercury retrograde periods are coming. And I think it's important to remember, like, oh, wait a sec, like, I have actually been through this particular one before. Like someone might see that Mercury station is exact on their Mars or something. Well, you know, check back six, seven years ago. There would have been a Mercury retrograde pretty close to your Mars before. You know, maybe that will give you some, uh, some insight that, uh, you know, could be, um, uh, reassuring or, or maybe not reassuring. <laughs> um, you know, depending on, uh, depending on what happened, but it gives you something to sort of automatically look back towards like, okay. You know, six years ago, um, 2015, uh, in May, June, it would have been a, a retrograde fairly close, um, to, uh, this, this current one. Um, what are some other recurrence transits? Or- yes, yeah, mother really, really. So probably the simplest and most reliable and closest and most, uh, in some ways beautiful one <laughs> is probably Venus. Um, you know, Venus. Uh, is really really reliable it has a very um uh, yeah has a very reliable cycle of uh, about eight years eight years exactly it will be removed by about two degrees and two days so it's really um i mean it's almost it's it's so reliable like uh that uh it's it's almost kind of funny but like if you look at some um, the uh, if if you see Venus's retrograde, for example, in a given sign, then you know that it went retrograde in that same part of the zodiac, very close to those same degrees, eight years prior. And oftentimes there is a kind of connecting thread 
between those successive Venus retrogrades that reoccur in the same part of the zodiac. Um, and um, there's also kind of a four year division with Venus let's as not, well. Like, yeah, let's not overcomplicate. Let's yeah, stick with sorry, the basic. Yeah, one. I'll stick with the basic. Yeah, so eight years is the main one you should be aware of for Venus. Absolutely. So um, let's actually show that because, like, being sure. able to look that up in ephemeris is a really good, tangible, again, like predictive technique that you can do with an ephemeris. So Venus is actually going retrograde this year, isn't it? Yeah, December 2021 through January of 2022. Okay, there'll so be let's a Venus retrograde in Capricorn. Let's pull up our Astro Dean's ephemeris for December of 2021. We pull up Venus, we see it starts off the month at 20 Capricorn. We scroll down and we see it stationing retrograde at 26 degrees of Capricorn on the 19th of December. Um, so, 19th of December, stationing at 26 degrees of Capricorn in December of 2021. So, your basic principle that you just introduced is that Venus will do approximately the same thing in eight year intervals, which means if we subtract eight years, if we go back eight years earlier, we should see Venus stationing very close to the same degree, offset by about two degrees around 26 degrees of Capricorn. So eight years earlier would have been 2013, December, right? Yeah, so yeah. approximately around December 19th or yeah, December, uh, December 19th of 2013, Venus right, should go retrograde. Let's see if that's true. Let's see if your math checks out. So I pulled up the astro.com ephemeris for 2013. Here's January. I'm going to scroll through to the very end of the year to December, and let's see if Venus did in fact go retrograde in Capricorn eight years earlier. So we see that the year started off with Venus again at 21 degrees of Capricorn at the start of December, and if we go down that column, we see it stationing retrograde at 28 degrees of Capricorn on the 22nd of December. So at two days and two degrees removed from 2021. Yeah, and remember, so, it goes backward as you go forward in time. So, right. So it was at twenty-eight degrees in December of twenty thirteen, and then it moved two degrees eight years later and stationed at like twenty-six degrees of uh, Capricorn here in December of twenty twenty-one. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting to know too, because that means eight years prior to twenty thirteen. In December of 2005, it would have occurred at zero Aquarius. That would have been the last time that Venus went retrograde at the first degree of Aquarius. So knowing that like all of the Venus retrogrades past 2000, the end of 2005 were are occurring solidly in Capricorn and are no longer going from Aquarius into Capricorn. So there are some people who might have had a recurrence with Venus going through the seventh house or something when it was still in Aquarius, but now we'll no longer have that past 2005. And the Venus retrogrades in that time would be more relevant for sixth house matters, um, you know, for, uh, the, for the foreseeable future. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the eight year return of, of Venus is really simple, but also really amazing. Um, recurrence cycle just because of its closeness and how relevant it seems to be for people's lives, especially in terms of um, uh, their social lives, romantic lives. Um, and you can use it not just with the retrogrades, but also the Sun-Venus conjunctions as well. Um, they, in fact, uh, in the U.S. Census, the average length of the average length of time 
a marriage loss is eight years. <laughs> um, so statistically, you know, uh, the average length of time of a, of a union is, is a Venus cycle. And, um, you know, once you're aware of that, you start seeing that number pop up everywhere when it comes to studying the lengths of people's like relationships or, you know, you see people getting divorced or something after 16 years or, or, uh, 24 years and you know, oh yeah, it's Venus. Um, let me see if your math checks out for 2005. So here's the astro.com ephemeris for 2005. Scroll to December, and we see Venus start out again in Capricorn at the beginning of December. And there it is, stationed at one degree of Aquarius on the 24th of December. So two days and about, again, two, two-ish degrees. Two-ish degrees, yeah. Yeah. So that's really nice. And that's one of the things you can do with the ephemeris is track recurrence. Am I using the right term, recurrence? It's a, it's a synodic cycle, actually. Yeah, it's a synodic recurrence. Yeah, it's a well, because technically a synod is just like a sun would just be when the sun meets up with Venus, which it does five times every eight years direct and five times every eight years retrograde. But this particular eight-year unit we're using is really a recurrence of a particular sun-Venus synod. So, um, it's a uh, it's it's a little ambiguous, but I would think that the most accurate term would be like a synodic recurrence. I just call it a, a Venus period, <laughs> a yeah. Venus cycle. So, and I've done episodes on that before. Uh, one with Nick Diggin Best, which was episode thirty nine, which is titled "Venus Retrograde Challenging Consensus," and then there was another one I did last year with Ariel Gutman, which was titled "Mythic Astrology and Venus Retrogrades" with Ariel Gutman, because both of them. Are astrologers that have that that cycle is so regular of a recurrence, and you can time things with it. And sometimes, for certain people, it can be so important in their lives when their lives are really tied into a certain Venus retrograde cycle. That every eight years, that can be like a major event for them that takes place in their life or a major turning point. That some astrologers have like specialized in that cycle as like a major part of their career. Yeah, it's it's really it's. I mean, I don't want to say like more, more some plans are more important than others, but I think uh, uh, that particular cycle is um, is pretty amazing um, right. with how much you can do with just that. All right, so jumping back in from our break, so we talked about the eight-year Venus cycle. There's also other synodic cycles. There's roughly a 15-year period for Mars. It's not quite as exact for Venus, but it's good to know that that exists. And there's other synodic cycles as well. Um, so, yeah, we have the 12 year cycle of Jupiter, which is relatively straightforward. Saturn, 29 year cycle. Uranus, 84 years. Neptune, 165. Pluto, 248. And so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that uh, we need to break all of those down, but are sure. there any other? I guess it's just a matter of using the ephemeris. You can get a good sense for the speed and motion of the planets, and sometimes there's other deeper cycles that are sort of um, built into some of that as well. Yeah, I think one thing that people should know about the outer planets in general is like. You know, you, you often see in a similar way that people kind of freak out about the Mercury retrogrades, people also seem to make really a lot of hay about, you know, is it bad if like my outer planets are retrograde? And it's important to note that like those planets retrograde for like almost a third of the year or more. Um, and that 
once the sun is far away enough from any of the uh, superior planets, those are the planets which are um, further away from the sun than the Earth is, so Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, um, those are going to be, those are always going to be retrograde once they're past a certain number of degrees from the sun. So basically, once, once planets are like about a hundred, 110 or so degrees, uh, away from the sun, they're going to be retrograde. And they're always going to be retrograde when they're at opposition with the sun. They're going to continue to be retrograde until they reach again around 110 or so degrees, um, from the sun. And I think that's important for people to remember because I think when you're, especially when you're first learning astrology, it can seem like the positions of the planets are kind of erratic or they're just sort of random. And, um, you know, really it helps to know that, oh, a sun Jupiter opposition is always going to happen like during a Jupiter retrograde, like a Jupiter, a <laughs> uh, sun Jupiter opposition will mean that Jupiter is necessarily retrograde. It has to be. That's, that's all, you know, that you're never going to have a case where, you know, Jupiter's direct and opposite the sun. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I did an episode with Demetra. Was it the episode? It was right. I think it was the episode, two episodes before this one on the sun. And we talked, focused a lot on the solar phase cycle and talked about those things like the outer planets. Um, Besides Mercury and Venus, but any planets from Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn outwards, um, some of those things about how if the planet is opposite the Sun, it's always going to be retrograde, or that um, Jupiter, for example, whenever it stations retrograde or direct, it's usually pretty closely trying the Sun at that time, and some of the exactly. other outer planets a little bit more approximately. And um, I would think one other thing that uh, you'd want to know is um you know the uh, one of the other visual you know um components or one of the other visual features of a planet cycle is its helical rising or setting into the beams of the sun and traditionally that span is about 15 degrees um so if a planet is uh within 15 degrees of the sun applying or, or separating that uh it will it will it's it's obscured and so there's something about the activities of that planet that we'd say is somehow covert or unseen or, or internal or something like that. And um, it's important to remember that that 15 degree separation is more of a it's more of a rounded number. There are some other sort of pre more precise figures technically for uh, when planets actually make the helical rising and setting. Um, uh, if you use the um, planetary cycles ephemeris on the Astro Deans page. They actually have individual um, uh, files for each planet to show uh, when planets are actually making the helical rising or helical setting. So I think in the PDF files it says like it's uh, at an evening, it's like uh, evening rise, evening set, morning rise, morning set, or what have you. And um, so, like for Mercury, it actually seems to be closer to about ten degrees from the sun that it says it's likely rising or setting from the sun. Um, and then for uh, uh, for for Venus, it seems to be about ten degrees or so. For Mars, it seems to be about fifteen, so closer to the um, traditional amount. For some reason, Jupiter they have a likely rising and setting when it's about ten degrees away from the sun, and then for Saturn, it's fifteen degrees. So there's slightly variable. Amounts and obviously the fifteen degree rule is a good rule to to still 
basically used, but it's also kind of nice to know that we actually do have uh, ephemeris which tell us the uh, more or less the a more precise figure for when a planet actually makes its lyrical rising or setting. Um, and for Mercury and Venus, another thing that can be kind of hard to spot when you're just reading through the ephemeris is when Mercury and Venus have reached their maximum elongation from the sun. You know, because only a certain number, like Mercury can't go more than 28 degrees from the sun. Um, Venus can't go any more than, I think, 48? Yeah, 48. Yeah, 48. So um, it's sometimes it can be kind of hard to just see that in the ephemeris. So it's kind of nice that we do have other ephemeris which show you the the dates that those planets reach those map points of maximum elongation. Because it's important to remember that when Mercury or Venus are at their maximum elongation, they're at their greatest brilliance. They are most visible in the sky. They're at their kind of greatest extent from uh, the sun. So theoretically, we might link that to maybe the power of that planet to you know, bring forth its significations, to, to shine at its most brilliant. Right. So some of those other ephemeris you're talking about on astro.com, if you just go to their... Um, what they're all about astrology, nine thousand year ephemeris section, and then scroll down to the bottom of the page, you'll see planetary some of this cycles. other stuff. Yeah, that one. Planetary cycles and sign ingresses, solar and lunar eclipses, moon ingresses, midpoint ephemeris, heliocentric ephemeris, um, tables of houses, and it even has a hypothetical planet ephemeris um, for Uranian astrology or the Hamburg school, although it has a funny, uh, it has like a funny like um, comment about that. It says talking well, about like the, fictitious. Also contains just, the fictitious, <laughs> right? <laughs> celestial objects. Um, oh, I hope you don't have too many uh, uh, Uranian uh, Hamburg school. Uh, followers, <laughs> I'd be a little mad, but uh, yeah, they do have ephemeris for uh, those. Um, they do have an ephemeris for those those hypothetical bodies. Yeah, somewhere it has like a derisive comment about some of them not going retrograde or something like that, saying that it's not not astronomically possible, which is funny. Uh, anyways, that's a whole separate episode. But yeah, lots of other different types of ephemeris and different things you can look at depending on what you want to find. Most ephemerises that we're talking about are just showing planets moving through the signs of the zodiac and the degrees of the zodiac, but there's different things you can look at as well. Um, one other interesting thing I wanted to mention you can do with an ephemeris is you can do some like quick and dirty secondary progressions as well. If you just look up the the month of your birth and the month afterwards, because secondary progressions is it just equates one each of the each day of your life after you're born. To one year of life, and it says that wherever the planets were, let's say, five years after you were born, or five days after you were born, will be like the experience you'll have for the entire year of when you're five years old. Or wherever the planets are, twenty days after you were born, will be your experience when you're twenty years old. So, <clears throat> does that make sense? Uh, yeah, and I, I've seen. I mean, actually, I've, I've, I think back in college or something, I, I, I was, um, I maybe had a few drinks with me and uh, got somehow the conversation turned to astrology, and uh, I only had an ephemeris 
on me at that point. I didn't have any kind of apps on my phone or anything. And um, so I remember like doing kind of a quick uh, secondary progression type uh, analysis on her chart. And I was wonder. I asked her about uh, the dates. Um, I asked her about like this year um, where Saturn had stationed retrograde, um, uh, you know, by secondary progression. And uh, it turned out that that was the year that uh, one of her parents had passed away and that a lot of things in her life had kind of gone the wrong way after that happened. Um, and so, you know, it's a great party <laughs> trick, you know, yeah, it's remind perfect. Me, remind me not it. to take you to parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I asked what happened to the, 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 the secondary progressed Saturn station and it was about, yeah, how, how uh, the it was about the, that was the year her one of the parents passed away, and so yeah, then um, uh, there were some tears, and uh, I uh, slowly slinked out of the room in uh, shame and regret. But you okay. know, it's great. You know, it's it's a great uh, it's a great technique to use. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the funny things of why I, why astrology is not a good party trick because <laughs> because people will sometimes do that, They'll be like read my chart or tell me about this, and you know, it's like got too real. There, yeah, things can get really real really fast. And that's one of the reasons I often, when people do ask for like quick delineations or like read my chart, I don't always, I don't do that usually partially right. just because it is, it can be kind of a serious thing and people right. sometimes aren't, aren't expecting that or can be caught off guard. Now, obviously, I had no idea what, um, you know, what that Saturn station was going to be about. I just asked, oh, you know, what happened at age, you know, 17 or whatever it was like it was it was very um yeah i had no idea that it was going to be so serious but i thought it was but it was also really compelling because i was like wow damn like i just counted in a book <laughs> and came out to this date that actually though this age that you know was kind of relevant for some of the themes of that planet so um yeah i thought that was uh impressive yeah even if it um, was also a in a bad situation but yeah um, that was it was back in college it was back uh back when i was young and foolish all right more sorry. foolish. Uh, i'm sure she's forgotten at this point or at least <laughs> yeah but but secondary progressed stations when a planet stations retrograde <clears throat> or direct by secondary progression that's one of the most impressive parts of secondary progressions for me because it often shows an important turning point in the person's life that you can kind of tell it at a glance by secondary progression. Um, so Kelly Surtees and I uh, did an episode on secondary progressions at one point. Um, secondary, oh yeah, it was titled. It was episode one forty four, titled "Secondary Progressions: Every Day Symbolizes a Year." And I talked. About, one of the examples I always like to use was um, Alan White, who's our mutual friend from Project Hindsight, because he. Had this crazy year in his life where like two or three planets stationed retrograde or direct at the same time, and that ended up being the year that he found Project Hindsight and discovered Hellenistic astrology, which ended up being a major turning point for him. Um, that really characterized a major part of the last like twenty years of his life, and you can really see turning points like that sometimes by by zooming in on uh, secondary progress stations. So. Just to show how that works with secondary progressions, I pulled up the ephemeris for um, my year of birth for like November of 1984, and 
if you look at November 1st, which is when I was born, it gives all most of the basic planetary placements in my birth chart. And then you basically just count forward one day for each year. So November 2nd would be when I was like a year old, and November 3rd would be the year after that, and the fourth, and so on and so forth. So um one of the cool things that you can do then is you can try to look for when did when will certain planets station retrograde or direct and know that that will be an important year. So I had like Merc- progressed Mercury station retrograde not that long ago in the past few years at zero degrees of Capricorn. Or one of my favorite ones, another thing that you can do with secondary progressions that you can eyeball in an ephemeris is when will any planets go exact or form exact aspects by secondary progression? And sometimes that can signify a really major year as well. So, for example, um, transiting Venus came through uh, Capricorn. So, it's natally, it's in Sagittarius, at like 15 Sagittarius in my chart. Um, but about 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, transiting Venus came up and conjoined my. Uh, secondary progressed Jupiter, or secondary progressed Venus conjoined secondary progressed Jupiter here at um, 13 degrees of Capricorn, and that ended up being the year when I met my like partner Lisa. Oh, yeah, when the secondary progressed Venus conjoined Jupiter. So you can kind of see that in the ephemeris by just eyeballing it, and the fact that Venus would conjoin Jupiter in that year, and equating that to when I was. However old I, years old I was, twenty three or twenty four. Yeah, I think my Mercury went direct by progression when I was about thirteen to fourteen, mm. which was when I moved to the United States. Um, which was significant because you know, being born with Mercury retrograde, I had had a lot of speech issues growing up, um, and as a very young child. And in the years prior to moving to the United States, I had moved to uh, Germany, and that's where I had really struggled with learning the language. I mean, after just you know barely conquering my own speech issues in English, and I had to learn this whole other language. So, really, moving to America was the biggest relief um, because I was finally in a new place where I was able to speak my own uh, language again, and uh, that was the year that. Mercury stationed direct by progression. Um, so it was like finally moving forward, you know, after kind of a lifetime up to that point of, of, um, being sort of set back in a way. Or what year were a, you born again? I was born, uh, 1987. 87, o- right. October 23rd, 1987. Uh, so Mercury stationed direct about, uh, 14, 13, 14 days later. And that was, it was 13 years old that I moved, uh, to, uh, the United States. So, um, it was, uh, I think, uh, it was, it was, I can see how that uh, sort of makes sense in terms of Mercury. And this also made me wonder because Mercury goes retrograde, uh, you know, so often, I imagine that uh, a lot of people kind of have some sort of Mercury. Uh, type of story by progression, you know, if they're born just prior to a retrograde or perhaps in a retrograde, right? Um, you know, uh, I sort of would think that those moments of Mercury stationing direct or going retrograde progression would be, you know, these uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, more uh, common 
life themes that people go through around uh, those time frames in your life or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what was your birthday again? October 23rd, 1987. Right. So there it is. So Mercury's around 10 degrees natally of Scorpio. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Uh, but it's stationed retrograde. So you can also see in the ephemeris that it's stationed um, the week before you were born at 13 right. degrees of Scorpio. So then we scroll down and we see Mercury stationing direct at 27 Libra here. So that means you were what, 12, 13, you said? Uh, I was I was thirteen when I moved, so it was uh, October twenty third. So it's about eight plus you know, six. So that's yeah, it was about it would have been around thirteen to fourteen. You know, depending on it would have been stationing direct basically in that year. Yeah, so that's pretty crucial, and that makes sense. And there's you can see like a sign ingress where Mercury would have um, moved direct back into Scorpio. Uh, here on the 12th of November 1987, whatever progressed year that that coincides with. You um, know, that's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> um, I think because um, I was around 2021 when I started writing uh, for the Celebrity Astrology blog. Um, you mean 2011? 20. What, what year? I was. I oh, was. You were 20 years yeah, old. Yeah, I was 20 years, years old. Yeah, I was 20 years old. Uh, when I started working for the celebrity astrology blog, what writing with that was when I first started doing astrology blogging, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cause then it was 2009, just like at the very beginning of 2009 that we started the political astrology blog. So really that, uh, uh progressed Mercury ingress almost coincides with my, uh, the beginning of my, uh, activities in, in writing astrology. Blog off yeah, something, something. I mean, essentially, your activities of writing as a professional astrologer, right? <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, age age twenty or so. That's cool. Um, let's see if anything else looks like Venus will change signs at some point. It'll move, or Mars will change signs and move from Libra to Scorpio here around twenty five. That's that's still a while in the future, right? Yeah, it's still yeah, still ways to go. Okay, but anyway, but, so that's uh, another- yeah, that's how you can kind of use it. Yeah, fun, interesting way of using secondary progressions using ephemeris, and that's like a really easy because you can animate a chart and just like see and like eyeball when different planets station retrograde or direct by secondary progressions. But this is actually the easiest way for me to see those important turning points is just looking at an ephemeris and then seeing in the month or two after a person was born that'll show you know the first thirty to sixty years of their life essentially and help you to narrow down and zoom in on really important turning points in their life when a planet stations retrograde or direct or ingresses or ingresses right um there's pro- or 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 makes form, an aspect forms yeah. a major aspect in my case like a conjunction that looks mm. really good um yeah so that's a cool thing you can do with secondary progressions using an ephemeris um are there any other things like that that are techniques that we meant to mention that are like fun little tricks and tips for ephemerises um. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I know it's worth mentioning, but basically, um, it's also pretty easy to see just by looking at ephemeris when a planet enters its pre-retrograde shadow and exits oh, yeah, its yeah. post-retrograde mm-hmm. shadow. That's crucial. Um, which is actually it's actually a little easier to see that in an ephemeris than it is by animating the chart because you have yeah. to kind of go back and see oh where will it eventually station direct you know 
uh, and then go back again to see, okay, when did it first reach that degree? Whereas when you just have it on the page, you can kind of just, you know, refer to it. It's all laid out. Let's use right now as an example of that because we know Mercury is getting ready to go retrograde. And I remember, so it was like a few days ago, Jupiter ingressed into Pisces, right? And, but I, in the back of my head, I was realizing that like the day after that, Mercury would also enter into its shadow, which is the degree that it will retrograde back to later the following month. And so it was a little bittersweet because I was seeing things like Jupiter ingressing into Pisces and like, the CDC announces that people that are vaccinated don't have to wear masks anymore inside or outside. But then seeing Mercury also enter its shadow degree that it's going to come back to like a month later made me a little, a little nervous about whether that might be, you know, some backtracking at some point. Right. Well, if Jupiter represents trust, um, you know, then it's, uh, I feel like just going by the honor system, basically. Uh, it's sort of interesting that even we know Jupiter eventually will have to go out of its trusting sign into its more doubtful, skeptical sign of Aquarius. Um, you know, so uh, this, uh, I think, the optimism that Jupiter sort of represents will eventually have to be kind of reined back in for a little bit longer in the year, and when it finally re-enters Pisces again, hopefully that is at a more, let's um, at a time when. Uh, we really will be more free to be more trusting or open you know, or uh, you know, of uh, of other people and uh, adherence to the vaccine and other public health uh, measures. Yeah. Um, so here is the ephemeris again for May of 2021. We can see that Mercury will station retrograde at the end of the month at 24 degrees of Gemini. And then if we scroll down, we see that it starts going backwards um, from 24 Gemini to 23 Gemini to 22, 20, 19, 18, 17, 16. Then it slows down again and it stations direct at 16 degrees of Gemini on the 23rd of June. So that means that if we back up, we want to see when did Mercury first pass 16 degrees of Gemini, which is the degree that it will eventually retrograde back to, because when it first passed that degree, that's the start of what we call the shadow period, which is like the pre-retrograde buildup phase. So, and if we scroll back up, we see that Mercury first passed 16 degrees of Gemini on the 15th of May. Um, and like I said, that was like the day after Jupiter ingressed into Pisces right. here. So that's another thing that you can see with an ephemeris that's really helpful is you can see the coinciding of two important astronomical or astrological phenomena. In this case, Mercury entering its shadow degree almost on the same day or very close to the same day as Jupiter changing signs. And sometimes noting important parallel lineups like that can end up being important. So here we would say that Mercury entered its shadow period, which is the degree that it will later retrograde back to here on the 15th of May. And what that usually means in tangible terms is that something something sometimes that was initiated or started that you, you thought should be like one action and then you're done, um, because Mercury will later retrograde back to that exact degree, it means that there's something that was initiated at that time that sometimes you'll come back to or you'll have to revisit even though you may not have anticipated or expected to have to revisit that action that was taken at that time. So that's the start of the shadow phase. And then 
the shadow phase lasts all the way up until Mercury actually stations retrograde on the 30th. The retrograde period ends at 16 degrees of uh, Gemini on the 23rd, and then you enter into the post-retrograde phase, uh, post-retrograde shadow period, which is that Mercury is still retreading the same degrees of like 16 degrees of Gemini, 17 degrees of Gemini, until it passes the degree that it went retrograde at, which in this case is 24 degrees of Gemini. So then you actually have to scroll all the way down into July to see when Mercury passed 24 degrees of Gemini, and that would have occurred right here between the 7th and 8th of July. So it's not until the the 7th or 8th of July that Mercury finally passes and leaves the degree that it went retrograde at, and at that point it's sort of fully free of the retrograde phenomenon and some of the themes and situations that will coincide with the retrograde period. Also worth uh, identifying that, like, or remembering that Mercury goes retrograde over approximately eight degrees. So knowing that span of degrees kind of helps you uh, uh, remember that, okay, any planets within the, that span, you know, those are the ones which are going to be potentially most affected by this particular Mercury retrograde in Gemini. Um, uh, because then it also kind of just helps to sort of visualize, okay, it's really just these eight degrees that are kind of being scrutinized uh, by by Mercury. Right, definitely. So I'll sometimes I'll go through and I'll highlight like this. Can you see that highlighting? I don't mm-hmm. know. Right, the, yeah. I'll cool. highlight the shadow degree in maybe like the direct station degrees or the retrograde degrees as well, just to um, really highlight that as, a, as something that's um, important and that I need to pay attention to. And that's one of the useful things you can do with an ephemeris to keep in mind um, some of those degrees. What was our other degrees? 16. 16? Okay, so you just highlight 16 here, and bam, your shadow degree is now noted. So if you're trying to do a forecast, you can kind of keep that in your mind as the starting point of that shadow period. Pretty cool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that is another thing you can do. Shadow periods also apply to other planets like Venus and Mars and other retrograde periods. It happens most frequently and is most obvious with Mercury, but it also applies to other planetary retrogrades as well. All right. Um, I think we've covered this pretty extensively. I'm trying to look through. Um, we've talked about different types of ephemeris. We've talked about the fact that software programs are essentially just you can animate the ephemeris, so they have an ephemeris built into them. So it just shows you the data visually instead of in this more numerical tabular format. Um, the American ephemeris is the main print one that we use. Otherwise, you can get free ones from astro.com, or um, I, ha- I see you have a note here that there's also graphic ephemerises on places like astroseek.com. Yeah, it's sort of that, um, they kind of look like squiggles or you know spirals kind of um, basically, uh, I don't know if you want to grab that up so you can see what it looks like, but. Um, well, yeah, there's just, it's more of like a chart, though, because when I think of a graphic ephemeris, I think of like oh, the cup- like um, the way it looks on Solify. Yeah, exactly. Like here's one from Astrogold. So I just did a search for like graphic ephemeris, and what came up was, let me see, let me know if you can see this, but it looks kind of like this. Mm-hmm. So that's one from like Astrogold or 
Um, oh, look, there's there's uh, the, the uh, Astroseek spiral down there on the right. Here's a graphic of ephemeris from Cafe yeah. Astrology. So yeah, there's the the one from... So that is a type of ephemeris. I guess it's more of like a visual chart ephemeris type right. representation. Yeah, Looks like so Mercury that's- going three. Yeah, you can see Mercury's three retrogrades over that year in 2019. Right. Or I have like a poster that shows a circular version of that, just where the planets will go over the course mm-hmm. of a year. I guess that right. is a type of visual ephemeris now that I think of it. Um, yeah. So there's many different ways of presenting the data visually, or there's different data that you can show, but the underlying thing is just getting a feel for and getting an intimate understanding of planetary movements. And the more that you do that, the better you're going to be as an astrologer, because that's all astrology is, is if it's the study of planetary movements and how those coincide with earthly events or events in our lives. And if that allows us to make statements or predictions about people's future or about their present or about their past, the more familiar familiar you are with those planetary movements and the more of a command that you have over those movements and the the sort of mathematical or astronomical understanding of them, the better you're going to be as an astrologer. So that I think that's really the most important thing, that it doesn't matter what type of ephemeris you use or how you harness this data. It's just that you should do your best to try to become proficient at using it in some different ways um, so that you're really working with the underlying astronomy that's underlying your astrology and you have some sort of understanding of how those planetary movements work. And eventually, if you uh, become familiar enough with certain time, I mean, there are certain years now where I can actually remember the positions of the planets and using some of those recurrent cycles, um, just from memory, I can now begin to recall, um, you know, like it's obviously easiest with some of these like Venus. Um, but you can, you can even, um, you know, if you know the recurrent, the major cycles of like, uh, the outer planets and Jupiter and Saturn, you can, uh, eventually you'll get be able to get to the point where some might hear a year and you'll know like oh i know a mars retrograde happened that year in this sign or i know saturn and uranus and neptune pluto i know the general positions in that year um you know it's kind of funny our, our common friend uh, nick dagan best uh you know people call him the human ephemeris because of uh his ability to uh, recall uh general planetary uh, positions for any given date and i kind of aspire to get to that level of um sort of uh mastery and it's not just a it's not just a trick it's really useful because when you hear because when you hear about these numbers in the news or when people are talking about certain years where things happened you know it'll help you make connections um you'll be able to you know in a way you'll almost be able to transcend like the ephemeris um by uh by making this uh connections between different periods of time that kind of let you know how things are linked from things that happened before to how they apply in the present or in the future. And so um, it's really useful. But obviously, the ephemeris is where you got to start. And uh, it's really, it really is that book of life or of time that contains all the stories and events and, and people who've who lived and, and uh, in that time. I think that's just, uh, yeah, super profound. Yeah, a, a book that literally contains like everything that has happened or will ever happen, happen or is happening now, to the extent that astrology correlates with all those things and, and describes it in some way. Um, so yeah, that was a good point. That also 
just if somebody mentions like that they were born in a certain year, like if somebody says I was born in 1985, I automatically know they have like Saturn and Scorpio and like Pluto and Scorpio, for example. So you already know some basic things about their birth chart. Or if they say they were born in like 1992 or 1993, I'm like, oh, you have a, a, Neptune Uranus conjunction in Capricorn in your chart because I know that's when that that major outer planet conjunction took place. And uh, in the in a you know, a few decades from now, when someone you know you have a young person coming to you uh, for you to look at the chart and they say they were born in 2020, I bet you'll probably remember, you know, for sure uh, what uh, planetary placements they had. You're like, oh my god, you know, you're one of those kids. You're one of these, uh, you know. Um, scrappy survivors these uh just indomitable uh you know corona kids um, oh God, that's that's already happening to me because my my first ephemeris that i was showing that like blue ephemeris that's all in tatters you know i bought this in 2000 so my, my ephemeris is literally older than some of the astrologers uh these days which is a funny <laughs> thing and i have i have like marked down some transits for different days like you know in 2001, like it was like 9-11 happened, and I was like marking things up in my ephemeris, what different alignments were that day. And of course, I we now, know some astrologers who were born around then. <laughs> yeah, I know like, for like young clients that I have, I actually remember the transits that I was right. experiencing that time that are their needle placements, and that's been a bit of a trip. Um, yeah. We are we are getting old, Chris. <laughs> I know. I'm starting to. Um, that's that's bizarre. Like remembering the transits I was having when some uh, the experiences when I was, was having yeah. when somebody was born. That is a bizarre territory that we're now firmly entering into. And I guess everybody will experience at some point. But um, yeah, that's that's begun, been a new experience. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, yeah. There's eventually there's a point where you. Uh, the the whole point is it's not just it's not just numbers it's not just math but it's it's also people and things that have really happened and um, life yeah and knowing some of those cycles knowing uh, for example we've mentioned Cam White and Cam White was born twelve years before me so I know automatically he also has Jupiter and Capricorn which is similar to my chart placement of Jupiter and Capricorn or recently in the news for example. There was that announcement that like Bill and Melinda Gates were getting divorced, and the headlines all said like after 27 years of marriage. So every astrologer that read that headline automatically knew, oh, that's a Saturn cycle. Cycle that means their marriage must be having a Saturn return right now, and that's true. If you go back and look at when they were married, they were married with Saturn when Saturn was in Aquarius in the 1990s, and now Saturn has returned back to Aquarius. You know, 27 something years later. Also, good call, Chris. On uh, I remember when that when the news first came out that they were going to be divorcing. I saw a comment of yours on Facebook where you said something like, "I think this probably started when Saturn was actually going through Bill Gates' seventh house." And then those articles came out about how this has actually been in process for the past couple of years while Saturn was in Capricorn. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it makes some. Um, yeah, that that was a good call. It makes a lot of sense, and that's a really great example of. Of how just being familiar with these numbers and cycles allows you to automatically clue in to, you know, uh, things that are that are happening. You know, look at, I mean, there's so, I mean, 29 is probably one of the the biggest ones. You know, when someone reaches the age of 29 and they do something big, you're like, oh, okay, this is probably to do with uh, the Saturn return. There might be other things going on, but like, um, there are some really uh, interesting connections like that. And then with like looking at the uh, 
you know, uh, when like wars break out and things like that, you can often connect like, you know, what Mars was doing 15 or 17 years prior um, to uh, somehow that it, some way that it kind of contributes to what's happening uh, in that current uh, climate. So it's really, um, it's, it's a very powerful uh, kind of tool to have that starts with just getting familiar with the ephemeris. Yeah, and giving you a mastery, especially over transits. So mastery over transits is a predictive and a timing technique, and also just familiarity with birth charts and different eras and different, for example, I did an episode with Kira Taborn on generational astrology and different generational signatures when, for example, different decades when Pluto was in Scorpio versus when Pluto was in Sagittarius or different Few year time spans when Saturn was in Scorpio versus when it was in Sagittarius or Capricorn or Aquarius or what have you. And you can also, when you start to think about things in terms of those broad spans of time, which you can study in the ephemeris, you can um, not not categorize people, but at at least um, block out different frames of time, different time spans that you know have certain planetary signatures. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, I guess that's basically what also like Richard Tarnas's book was, Cosmos and Psyche, where he's doing that for much longer spans of time of looking at different planetary alignments, um, like the uh, like Uranus-Neptune conjunctions or the Saturn-Pluto conjunctions. Actually, that was one he had a whole chapter about was like Saturn-Pluto alignments and bad stuff that's happened under those. And he was looking at ones like. Um, you know, 1980, 1981, and the AIDS pandemic, for example. But then, of course, looking at that historically and having looked at that in the past ended up becoming relevant in the future after he wrote the book when we had another Saturn-Pluto conjunction last year in 2020, and then all of a sudden we had the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, no, exactly. It's. I mean, this is the this this is absolutely why. Yeah, knowing how to use an ephemeris I mean, really gives you. Uh, it's it's a lot of uh, power, really, uh, that you're holding in that book. Is is um, um, giving you a way to figure things out that really you shouldn't be able to know. <laughs> um, so it's uh, yeah, it's sort of what makes astrology amazing. I mean, that's why we sort of do this, right? Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of different things you can do with that information and a lot of different ways you can use it. So um, yeah, I guess use it wisely. Um, I guess we didn't have a recommendation for, you know, I still think everybody should get a like a print version of an ephemeris. And like Lisa and I actually joke about, but it's not too far of an exaggeration that we kind of almost have like an ephemeris in every room of the house, because you never know when one of us is going to be like, where were the planets on such and such a day? And we'll have to like really want to immediately pull that up. And so we'll reach for handy ephemeris on the shelf and look up when that actually happens. So I do think there's still a good, I'm a very big fan of print books. So maybe that's part of my bias, but I think there's something useful about having a print ephemeris still and the way that you can like flip through it pretty easily, very large spans of time. So I'd recommend getting one. I don't think it matters if you get like a midnight versus noon one. I do have the noon version of the transcentry ephemeris just because then I know that it's starting in the middle of the day. And um, therefore, I know that in the middle of the day, the planets will be approximately where it's saying they are for each day. Yeah. But it's just going to be like seven hours off or something like that. 
six hours off for a midnight version, so it's not a huge difference. All right, so American Ephemeris, Astro.com Ephemeris, I think that's it. So thanks for joining me today for this. This was this was fun. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure as always. Uh, so you're staying busy with consultations and um, other things. You do birth chart consultations and also electional astrology and rectification. Is there and horary forgetting and horary astrology. And, that we were just talking and, about and uh, and tutoring. Okay. Uh, uh, what's your, what's your website? www.patrickwatsonastrology.com. Uh, awesome. Okay. And, and you can follow me on Twitter at pwatsonastro, and on Facebook at pwatsonastro. Cool. So people should check you out. I've been referring all my clients to you for years, ever since the podcast took over my life, and I stopped <laughs> having time to do consultations. So you have the approach that's like the closest to mine. So I refer most of my clients to you and Lisa. Um, so people should definitely check out your work if they're interested, and in also you. some of the things we talked about here, including like recurrent cycles and other things like that. Yeah. No. There's I. There's an indispensable. I find there's a, a really. Um, those can sometimes form some of the uh, best insights you know I can sometimes make into people's lives and what to expect from future ones is by uh, looking at those recurrences and um, uh, yeah it's it's yeah it's definitely a part of my my toolkit cool all right well people should check out your website at patrickwatsonastrology.com. Um, I meant to mention really quickly the software that we use for casting charts is SolarFire because everybody always asks me what software we use. So it's SolarFire from uh, alib.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that. Or there's a Mac version of a similar program called Astro Gold for Mac OS uh, available from, I believe, Esoteric Technologies. And the promo code for that is Astro Podcast 15. And that should be working sometime in the next week or so for a discount on that. So you can find out more information about that program at uh, astrogold.io. Um, all right, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everybody for listening or watching. Thanks to all the patrons for your support. And let us know if you have any questions in the comment section below this video on YouTube if you're watching the YouTube version. Uh, and please give it a like and a subscribe to help us on YouTube. All right, thanks for watching, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. 
the Astral Gold Astrology app available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io, and finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.